Welcome to Noble Warrior. This is a place where entrepreneurs talk about what it takes to build and scale purpose-driven organizations. We're going to talk about mindset. We're going to talk about mental models. We're going to talk about actionable tactics such that you can take everything that you learned here and build purpose-driven organizations. My name is CK Lin, biomedical engineer, PhD, UCLA, turned startup founding team member that turned an idea to a company of 200 plus people, Term executive coach for founders, entrepreneurs, focusing on mindset and culture. My next guest, he's designed over 33 cutting edge prototype flight vehicles, including the Virgin Galactic reusable spaceships, White Knight 2. And according to our mutual friend, he's one of the most interesting people in the world. He's also currently the CTO of the AngularBot camera motion control. Please welcome Robert Kilo Morgan. Hi, thanks. Thanks for having me on, on your show. Thank you so much for being here. I want to start off by asking you about your Burning Man experience. You're a longtime burner and you offer gifts of flights to people that go to Burning Man. Tell us a little bit about why you love Burning Man so much. What about Burning Man is just so compelling for you? You know, it starts when you arrive and you get permagrim and it seems like it lasts a week. And then you go home and the afterglow seems to last throughout the year. It's uh, a remarkable experience that that transcends what you could look up on YouTube. You know, the, the art is spectacular, the, the, the setting is really cool, the high desert, but the interactions one-on-one -on -one with people is so unique. It's people are so welcoming, gifting, inclusive, and it's not something you experience in what people, what burners call the default world nearly as often. And it really, I think it changes you for the better. And it's kind of like a, a reset button. It's, it's a great experience. I recommend it to anybody. It transcends any kind of socioeconomic, demographic, cultural thing. Just about anybody, I think, finds something at Burning Man that's somehow transformative. Can you describe for us, if we were watching through your eyes, my, uh, mind's eyes, like a movie, can you give us a moment where like a highlight, if I say Burning Man, what movie comes to mind, describe it for us. So that way people don't just hear about it. They're right there with you. Yeah. It's, it's very personal where you constantly experience generosity and creativity, just being directed in every direction at everyone. So. I've been hanging out with my comrades at our camp and someone rides up on a bicycle, a delivery, a delivery bicycle with an insulated box. And he pulls out a couple of pizza pies and says, is this the Black Rock Travel Agency? And we go, yes. And he goes, I have a pizza delivery for you. Now, we didn't order pizza. This camp is their purpose is they set up a, a roulette wheel put the names of camps on it, spin it. They have a, a pizza oven and they bake pizzas all day long and deliver them to the camps that are randomly selected by the, by the roulette wheel. 
Wow. Uh, and so you just, you know, I mean, what could be more enjoyable than someone just showing up and, Hey, I, I brought you a present. They don't even know you. Then they ride off. There's no, there's no tit for tat, no quid pro quo. It's just someone providing a gift, you know, to, to brighten your day. Mm. And uh, you feel compelled to pay it forward, right? So there's no mm. reciprocity, but you then become more motivated to maybe brighten someone else's day. And so everyone's going around doing nice things for other people that they wouldn't take the time to do elsewhere, that, you know, they're preoccupied with their own agenda, mm. Which is usually, you know, some sort of survival mode or solving problems. You know, I'm lonely, I'm hungry, I don't know how to pay my taxes, you know, my back taxes, what am I going to do about my mortgage, that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. so you kind of suspend that. So it's kind of like the fun of camp, but with the inclusiveness of something that's just completely unique. Mm. I don't know, what, what do you see when you think of Burning Man? I mean, there's so many different moments to describe yeah. but when you told me about the pizza delivery story it reminds me of a very magical moment that my 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 ex-partner and i were so there we were in the middle of the night is completely dark obviously and we were cold we were hungry it was two or three o'clock in the morning we were walking back to camp and it was just you know, but out of nowhere, it's like um, in the middle of the desert and you see a, a glimmer of blue LED light coming your way. And we're like, what's that? And before I know it, that that cart, blue light all over, a stainless steel exterior just open up like a spaceship right in front of us. And the people came out and they laid out a red carpet. They started, you know, forming this chocolate fondue right in front of us. And then they, they started serving us chocolate fondue, strawberries and fruits. It was very magical because you can see the steams on the side and the blue light and then the red carpet and then the chocolate fondue. And then these, so their gift to the playa, these are professional chefs, professional moving kitchen, going about and just feeding people randomly. And we were selected and that they, in the middle of nowhere, right. <laughs> serve as chocolate fondue. And, so and there was so much thought and intention in that gift too, right? It wasn't just a trinket or a piece of swag, you know, it, no. was, it was like an act of service. Yeah. And these, complete strangers. Yeah. These are professional chefs, right? So yeah. it was, I was very, very moved in that moment because that was very magical and totally unexpected. And it was just us. It wasn't like a crowd of people behind us. We just, we randomly selected the three of us, laid out, you know, red carpet style, uh, chocolate fondue. Right. That was awesome. Yeah. Are there yeah, other moments that, that you think of? happens all the time when you're there, right? I mean, it's because everybody is scheming some kind of way to do something like that, to, you know, expand your mind through some kind of interactive art or unexpected gift that just seemed like it's so appropriate at just the right time, just when you needed it. And, and I think it's because they've, you know, they've gone out there and experienced the same thing, you know, and it's, you're like, you like fantasize, like, wouldn't it be great if 
this happened just now. And I'm sure that that's how they was the motivation. They went and fulfilled that so that others would have that aha moment, you know, just so unexpected. Were there specific art projects that has brought an aha moment in you and it actually perpetuated over time that you still think about it? It's a very pivotal moment for you. Oh um, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of powerful art out there. I don't know the names of the pieces of art. I don't recall them, but there's ones that are, there's one that's a, a huge wireframe sculpture of a man and a woman sitting back to, I'm not sure it's a man and a woman. I've assumed it was a man or a woman <clears throat> sitting back to back, like sitting on the ground with their knees up. And then it's a, a wire mesh. And then inside are two infants that are reaching through the cages out at each other. So it's kind of like two people having two adults that have had a fight, some sort of conflict The the body language is that they're back to back, but their inner child's which are smaller representations and are opaque solid sculptures are reaching for each other lovingly. And it's just, it was a great, that was a very moving piece. Another one I really enjoyed what some of them are just so mind boggling because of the scale, you know, there mm -hmm. was a, uh, one year there was a Trojan horse that was made out of wood and enormous. I mean, like maybe three stories tall, the wheels, were probably 15 feet diameter. Your eyeball maybe didn't even make it to the axle. And the wheels were made out of wood, just like laminated big timbers. It was, looked legitimately antique. And then they had costumes that they provided people that looked like something out of some Mesopotamia or something. And they had rope, big jute rope that was, you know, like as big around as your neck. And it took hundreds of people to haul this thing out into the middle of the playa. And then they burned it. Wow. <laughs> you know, the next day, like they hauled it out, left it there for a while. And it's just, you know, they could have put dozens of, you know, soldiers inside, just like the original, mm -hmm. just kind of remarkable. Like, how did that come about? Mm -hmm. How complicated was it to bring that piece, that huge installation to the playa, the cost, the expense, the planning? Mm -hmm. All just for, you know, for everyone's enjoyment and pleasure and then to burn it, to just show the transitory nature of something. Right, the impermanence. You know, yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was not something small that disappeared. It was something huge. And you'd think that much investment, they'd maybe want to disassemble it, bring it back the next year. But no, they just torched it. So that's really interesting because I'll share with you before I went to Burning Man myself. Yeah. yeah. And quite honestly, it boggled my mind, right? Why would anyone, well, one, want to do that? Two, it's kind of ridiculous if you really think about it in a logical sense, right? Right. Then I was there and then I actually are immersed by these beautiful arts, beautiful people, technologies, you know, and experience the intentionality and the thought and the love that put into each piece. And then I get it. So what's, what's your take about, again, right? This, this, the making art for the sake of making art and then torch it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious to know your thoughts because you're a technologist. You're also a burner. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this, their effort of making art for making art's sake. 
so I think that, well, first of all, making art for art's sake is like the best reason to make art. And art is about communication. And you and I are retelling stories about art that inspired us. So even though they burned it, that Trojan horse lives on. You know, it brings a smile to my face, the, the grandeur of it, the, the ridiculous nature of it and how they got all these people to participate. It's like, you can say the same thing about theater. When the play's over, it's not about like what? film, like, a, like theater. Theater. You go to live right. theater, mm -hmm. and then when it's over, it's gone. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they close up the show and, and work on another production. It's not like making film where there's, it's archived. So, but it lives on in everyone's minds. You know, like they say, you know, we all die and disappear, but if we touch people along the way that are alive after we're gone, if we have children that, you know, we've influenced and created a positive influence, then, then each generation, you know, you continue in the minds of those people long after you're gone. And so the art continues as well. Mm. And so even though it seems silly, it's not. It makes it more valuable. Mm. right the scarcity of that art now is what adds value to it mm. i mean not everybody got to got to see that it didn't get you know that that cheapens it maybe why did also, you say you why, why did you say it cheapens it preserving it if they had brought it back every year and more people got to see it then eventually it will become cliche it'll become you know, an anachronism. So the beauty of what makes it special is you and I had to go there to experience it. We didn't, we're not able to take the experience and show it to everyone. Broadcast it, videotape it, document it, reshow it, make copies of it. So the, uh, some of the value is that we experienced it firsthand. It was a personal thing. The art was personal. It was interpersonal. And now it's gone. And so it lives on in our mind, which maybe is even more powerful or valuable than the, than the, the materialistic thing that it was. It was an idea, and ideas are powerful. So the idea kept going. So at first, it seems like, why would you expend all that energy to build something and then destroy it. But maybe it's not so silly. Mm. Yeah, I, no, I, I, I grapple with that idea. Yeah, because on the one hand, I appreciate the symbolism of impermanence. Hence why I yeah. love Burning Man, right? Like literally it's in the name Burning Man, like you build this ridiculous structures. And by the end of the week, you burn it. I love that symbolism. At the same time, I also think about, well, what if we do capture it? What if we do minimize it in such that we can distribute to more people, such that more people can experience maybe not the full scale of the meaning uh, of the grandeur, but they can experience partial grandeur, let's say, right? Because after all, if you look at the works of Shakespeare or whoever, right? We preserve their work and their work lived on even after hundreds or thousands of years. Right. So, you know, I kind of grapple with that because part of it is impact, 
emotional right. impact. And part of it is also distribution of the benefit. So I don't certainly have an answer here. What I, what I tend to do as a, as a technologist, as a cerebralist, I tend to lean towards more of the, <laughs> the distribution side, yeah. versus, but I do appreciate more and more as I grow older, the peak experience is also super important as well. Yeah. So I think that the, the reproduction is a cold medium. And one of the precepts of Burning Man is, is uh, that it's participatory, right? Mm. That it's interactive. And it's also more primal. And so, for instance, theater survives even though we now have film. Film has evolved from theater, right? They started, you know, recording what was happening on stage. And that was the early films were all stage productions. Mm -hmm. And then film has become its own art form that can be easily commodified. So another thing at Burning Man is about decommodification. So when you can replicate it, you can commodify it. So this way it limits mm -hmm. the commodification of thing, the experience. But you're right. Not everyone's going to be able to experience Burning Man. But right. maybe they will because you and I leave Burning Man and we take a piece of it with us in our heart, in our head. And then we, we influence people, we give back to our communities in ways that we learned about giving at Burning Man. So, so I think I, that's where, I think that's where the positive aspects are because we can't just show it to them. We have to, we can't show them the video. Okay. We're not supposed to show them the video. We're not supposed to duplicate the art outside of Burning Man. But what we do do is we on a personal level, we, we affect people in our default worlds. So I want to ask you this question, because if I zoom out, right, look at the ridiculous of Burning Man, of the symbolism of impermanence, if I zoom out, I mean, that's really our life. Shakespeare, Shakespeare said it so well, he said, life is a stage and we're nothing but actors and characters. Right. So, so if I look at it from that view, how can I be more ridiculous? And that comes to mind, right? Cause I don't want to just be a mediocre side character. I want to actually shine my light and just be as ridiculous as I can in life. Right. However, other people may view this as a caricature of the play, but that's part of having interesting conversations with interesting people is so that I can give me myself more permission to be more ridiculous. Anyway. Um, a little There's bit definitely of, a lot of that at Burning Man. Yeah, but but I wanted to ask you this question because, in many ways, you're very dedicated to be as "quote unquote" ridiculous as possible, right? You designed 33 cutting edge prototype flight vehicles, you know, including uh, rockets and aircrafts and, and things like that. You know, spaceships. <laughs> Most people don't do that. So tell us a little bit about. What inspired you to get into that? And, and what inspired you to be as, I'm using that word playfully, I hope you get as ridiculous as possible in that realm. Yeah, well, I think playful definitely hits upon it. It's the difference, I guess, between work and a career is, is are you playing when, you, when you're doing it? When you go to work, if it feels like play, then that's, that's a career. 
because it's a passion, right? It's something you want to do. And I've always loved everything about flying. At an early age, I was building model airplanes, model rockets, playing Frisbee, you know, anything that flies, birds, myself. I started taking flying lessons, ride my bike to the airport to take flying lessons. So just it's just a passion about, you know, I'm flying has certain metaphors that are associated with, you know, freedom and, and the three-dimensional nature of it. It's often inspiring even to people that don't fly or like to fly planes, but it's, it's an easy, it's an easy thing to identify with. And the reason is, is because it's liberating, it's transportation, all that, all those things that, that it implies. Adventure, danger, speed, it's all of those things. It's different perspectives. You go up and you look down. I mean, you, you see everything so different than uh, a thousand years ago, 10,000 years ago, we were walking around on the planet. Why is it so cool to climb a mountain and look down off the ridge? The airplane provides that same kind of perspective. And so it's liberating. It's inspiring. So my PhD advisor, who is no longer with us right now, but his pastime hobbies were aeronautics. And when I first found out about that, I was very surprised. Well, because he, like me, is a nerd. (laughs) And then I was like, what? You're interested in what? Acrobatics through air flights. And and now I understand more because you get to push the edge of that, as you said, uh, freedom, adventure, and different perspective, and put yourself in in that flow state, right? Right. So, out of all kinds of different flying experiences, do you have a preferred modality, like my advisor did, aeronautics, things like that? How do you mean? I'm, I'm making an assumption here. So there, yeah. there's probably different kinds of flying, right? The yeah. easy cruiser versus aeronautics uh, to extreme things. Are there different kinds of things that you're really into? Yeah, I hate the herd mentality. I don't like being and queuing up in lines. I don't like going through the TSA. I don't like being told how fast I can drive. There's something very libertarian or freeing about getting in the plane, going from A to B uh, on your own schedule, whenever you want it. Driving a car is similar, but there's surprisingly, there's less licensing and, and, and limits on flying to some extent, at least when you get outside of major metropolitan areas, you can travel all across the country in an airplane and never talk to anybody. You don't need permission to take off and land at most airports because they're uncontrolled and it can be very adventurous you can go into the outback you can go into a field or a grass airstrip or land on a mesa you know or in a helicopter you can land on a ridge without any runway and you can get to very remote places Uh, i've got friends who spend months every year just camping out of their airplane in Idaho, Montana, you know, just traveling in the, in the wilderness to places you... Wait, 
you can't get to in a car or that's you know, so it's difficult in a four-wheeler wow this is a new concept actually i, I yeah. heard about rving to places that you want to go i've never heard of camping out of your airplane that's it that's it. thank you for that <clears throat> yeah no absolutely people i've got a friend ramona she's her website is something it's sky chick is her handle but if you look that up and she spends often three four months in you know just hunting and fishing and living out of her, you know, camping out of the back of her airplane or in a tent neck under the wing of her airplane in very remote places. And, you know, you can obviously sightsee into mind bogglingly cool places that would be very difficult to get to. Otherwise cover a lot of territory. Yeah. You can, you can transport yourself. It's, it's, it's modern flying in a small plane is a lot like, Magellan or someone exploring a, in a sailboat, right? There's still wildernesses out there that are very inaccessible. And maybe they've been, maybe they're not unexplored, but it's an adventure to get there. And so it has that similar feeling like you would getting on a sailboat where you're pretty much suddenly the stakes seem, you know, a lot, a lot of times you go camping, even even car camping, there's a heightened sense that you suddenly feel your vulnerability and a responsibility like I can only eat what I carried with me or what I can find in the woods, you know, kind of that sensation of sort of a primal thing. You know, we get spoiled where you just go to the refrigerator or the grocery store and the food comes out like magic and you get in your car and turn the key and, you know, go from A to B on paved roads. So I think going in the outback, traveling by plane is, is a bit of an adventure. I liken it to, at least in a small plane that's not pressurized, it's a lot like traveling cross-country by motorcycle. You're subject to the weather, unlike a, a jet that goes way up above, pressurized jet where you go above it and they fly right through the weather in just a matter of minutes, they punch through all of the storms, get up on top, get you to where you're going. It's a totally different concept. So there's elements of air travel that can be very adventurous. Mm. Low and slow. A lot of people enjoy that. So I've had a lot of fun. There's like a magic distance that's, <clears throat> my plane's not fast enough that I would fly to the East Coast. I mean, I could, but it would, much like driving in a car, it'd take more than a day. So mm. it's quite an adventure doing that. Mm. But I can jump on the plane and go have brunch in Sedona and then come back to California on the same day. Whereas mm -hmm. you just couldn't do that in a car. So it's expanded the radius of my weekend ex explorations. I can go to Death Valley and land out there and have breakfast and come back and then go to Santa Barbara and have dinner and then come back. So you can go from the mountains to the desert, you know, fly up to Mammoth. So it's empowering and a bit liberating. Mm. One of the things we talk on the podcast quite a lot is about extending the range of our comfort zone. Right. And I think having a technology like an airplane, as you said, extends your range of like thinking about what's possible to do. Yeah, Cause the thought would never cross my mind. I'm just going to go have breakfast in Santa Barbara and then come back. <laughs> but, but having a plane, I'm like, oh yeah, it's normal. It's not a big deal. Right. You know, 
and, yeah. and there's definitely a challenge to that is you've, you've got to check the weather. You know, you can put yourself in serious danger if you don't do that. And then you've got to interpret the weather. And then there's always a risk because not only does the weather have some variables and accuracy, but there's personal limits in your skill and experience and the capabilities of the airplane to be able to transition. If the weather's marginal and there could be the risk of freezing, freezing rain at altitude, you're dealing with a lot more climate than you do on the ground that could be life-threatening. And so, so, I have, so I have it's a, a question. personal challenge in that sense, much like rock climbing can be very an intellectual thing. It's not just uh, sitting on your butt and, and pushing the go button. So, so I have a question there, right? Because <clears throat> what's that guy's name? JFK's son. Anyways, he was a new pilot. He went up, he was overconfident. He misread the weather or the system or whatever, and then drove yep. to his death, right? So yeah, Chesapeake it, Bay or whatever. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, it was like Chesapeake Bay or something. Or, something like that, right? Yeah, East Coast. And and so as you said earlier, it's about checking the weather, checking the system, chest, you know, checking with your own ability, also checking with your mental state. Right. right. And then your riding on the edge of danger and safety. So curious to know your point of view, because in my mind, again, a layman, not a pilot, obviously, it's dangerous to fly. That's, that's my perception. So when, as you do all these type of different adventures, tell us a little bit more about the sense of mm, danger or impermanence, like keep that in mind such that you're still having fun doing it at the edge of the flow zone, um, but also not put over pushing yourself to over the edge, so to speak. Yeah, I, it's definitely something that uh, depending, you, there's always more, you can always do more, fly higher, faster, farther into more uncertainty. You know, if you flying cross country, you could catch up to the weather, you know, like a line of thunderstorms that are over the Midwest. Well, it's sunny here, but where you're going, it's not. And so there's a lot of mental challenges to how, what strategy am I going to use? Do I leave earlier or do I actually leave later and let the storm pass and not catch up to it? Do I try and thread a needle and go under it or between storms cells? Am I, am I going to scare my passengers? Am I putting them at risk? They all are relying on me to keep them safe. So there's a, there's a lot of mental gymnastics there. And also it's very stimulating to push yourself as you learn and gain experience, you can take on more risk, but it's a calculated risk. If you're in a single engine airplane and the engine quits, you better find a place to land while you're gliding, right? But you're not going to go that far. So you better have an option always in the back of your mind, mm. right? And so they say there's bold pilots and there's old pilots, but there's no old, bold pilots. Mm. You know, so it's, it's about measuring the risk, just like riding a motorcycle. You know, if you ride around the city in traffic, there's a good chance someone's going to make a left into you and T-bone mm -hmm. you and you could get hurt, right? Mm -hmm. Much worse than you would in a car. Mm -hmm. But there's also the, the, the excitement of the adventure of riding a motorcycle and the, you know, the, being able to lean the bike and, and the acceleration and all that. The airplane offers the same kinds of 
you know, you're on the edge, it's a calculated risk. You can take little or as much risk as you want because there's so much freedom, mm -hmm. right? You can play it really safe and only fly on good days and uh, only go with someone, you know, maybe always fly with another pilot so that there's two of you to help make decisions and do weather planning and, or maybe you're prefer to, you know, go it alone. And so your decisions have consequences much like going out in the desert and only bringing one canteen of water. It's like you can make stupid decisions and you can put yourself at much greater risk. And so there's something exciting about taking, owning up to that personal responsibility. It makes you feel alive when you realize that, you know, it's amazing how hard it is to kill someone and how easy, and also how easy it is. You know, it seems like sort of a weird parabolic function like you can sort of be in the middle and never take much risk and never subject yourself to it's like making choices about what you put in your body or what you put in your mouth or how much sunshine you get you know you could get sunburn flying can be the same thing you know you can make choices but they have dire consequences when your engine quits in your car you just coast over to the shoulder in an airplane you better have you better have adequate training to make the appropriate decision about, is there an airport nearby within gliding distance? Is there a field? Is there a road that I can go land on? Mm. It, did the engine quit because of icing? Can I restart the engine at a different altitude after I get out of this moist, cold air? You know, So there's a lot of intellectual gymnastics going on. Problem solving, it's, it's fun. Mm. You know, to like challenge yourself personally and stay on that stay on that threshold yeah challenge. yeah I, I can start to see a little bit of a theme between burning man and 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 the love yeah. of flying now and, so and they have consequences right it's like yeah. there's an adventure there's a uh cost benefit trade you're making all the time if you do nothing you don't have the fun but you go do this at an at an increased risk so, so let's segue a little bit to actually yeah. designing uh, flight vehicles. So now you love flying, you love adventures, you love freedom. Now you're designing for uh, others. You have designed over 33, you know, prototype flight vehicles, which is tremendous. Like, you know, wow, this one, you're for sure dedicated to this. Just to be clear, I didn't design all 33 of those. I participated in all of those. Like... And intimately, in most cases, like I was a serious contributor, but yeah. So tell us a, a little bit about how you take this mental model of being responsible, but still push the envelope into the design realm of flight vehicles. Yeah. So I think one of the things I enjoy about aircraft design, most of the stuff I've done has been rapid prototypes. So I've worked very little on production aircraft. It's all like record-setting airplanes, one-offs. And so it's usually a very tight schedule. And it kind of, I think an analogy would be like maybe an art project for Burning Man where you've got, you know, one year, you've decided to do something, now you've got to complete it. You can't do it alone because it's a massive project, both technically and physically. So you've got to collaborate with a lot of people. You've got to communicate with those people. It requires uh, leadership that's inspiring, 
you know, to get people all running in the same direction, to align all those vectors of productivity. And then the payoff is like that first flight, which is very risky. And it's very transitory. You can't go back and redo the first flight. You only get one first flight. And there's a high risk there. And then hopefully you burn off that risk if it's successful with subsequent flights. But that's part of the big payoff is collaborating on something and then seeing it fly, which just seems like magic, right? It's defying gravity and doing unexpected things or performing in a way that's envelope pushing, right? Someone said you can't go this fast with this kind of airplane or you can't make an airplane that'll fly around the world nonstop on refuel. Well, I worked on a project that did that. So actually pause for a moment. Can you bring us back to, again, watching your life on a movie screen? Can you give us a moment where one of your vehicles or crafts that actually broke a record and then brings a tear of joy or whatever it is, you know, for you, just bring us back to that moment, please. So probably, uh, one of the most personal aircraft projects was the white Knight Virgin galactic white Knight two and, and the spaceship program. We started that program in 2006. I was working for a small company called Scaled Composites. And we were contracted by Richard Branson to design, build, and flight test those vehicles. And that was inspired by a previous program we had done, which was Spaceship One, which was the goal of that was to win the X Prize, which was uh, to build a spaceship that could go into space, which is defined as 100 kilometers, 328,000 feet, and do it twice in two-week time frames. So you had to, it had to be reusable. You had to turn it around, fly it again within two weeks, and it had to carry three people to space. And the inspiration was, it was started by a guy named Peter Diamandis, who's a remarkable human. Yeah, and... Yeah. So the X Prize was to motivate and spawn commercial space tourism or just, you know, NASA is a remarkable technical organization, but they just don't inspire people. They, they take something that's really cool and make it super boring. You know, the, the going to the moon <laughs> should have been like the coolest thing ever, but it's kind of like, I don't know, they somehow ruined it, right? Even for people like me who are passionate about aerospace. Oh they spoiled it somehow, you know, they just made it dry and, and technical and <laughs> you've got to be an Uber nerd to really still like love what happened there. I mean, you can appreciate it, but they took, I don't know, they somehow took the excitement out of it. Right. And so, and then, and then they also, it kind of ended like people were like, well, what's the point of driving golf carts on the moon? You know, there was kind of the response. It seemed like a waste of money. We would rather spend money trying to find our oil under somebody else's sand, you know, and fighting wars over that. It's strange what we decide is important and what's not important. So, yeah. So it's, it's you know, some of it, especially once you leave the atmosphere, it's about exploration again. And the challenge is not everybody gets to go. There's a couple of explorers that get that privilege. And so it's hard to, when it's, democratic nation that's publicly funding it it's hard to keep that enthusiasm up i think you know the older explorers were funded by 
kings who had unilateral control over how to spend that money. Mm. And there were probably a lot of profit motivations back then too. So that's where I guess commercial space tourism comes in is, is there a, can you, can you monetize it? Can you capitalize it? Can you mine asteroids? Can you build things in space? Can you harvest energy out there and bring it back? And that's something the commercial world's going to do, not government. Government's got the deep pockets to maybe do the initial exploration. But so the X prize was a great opportunity to motivate people to get into that. And subsequently there's been, you know, everybody's doing it now, right? Blue origins, SpaceX, et cetera. So that's great. You know, that's become a, hopefully a, a booming uh, industry that succeeds, that expands our world beyond just our atmosphere. Richard Branson was inspired by space, by the X prize and came to us and wanted us to basically scale that vehicle up quite a bit so that it could carry passengers. And I had the opportunity to lead the team and design the mothership and the whole spaceship mothership uh, configuration. And so we developed that very rapid paced, ambitious budget and schedule. <clears throat> and we built the mothership in two and a half years and then the spaceship started flight testing about a year and a half later after that. So we had the mothership flying and then we were able to get the spaceship going and start doing glide flights and then powered rocket flights subsequently. And to, to spend, to work with friends and collaborate and work really hard on something just, you know, 12 hour days, six days a week for a couple of years. And then to be able to be involved as a co-pilot in flight test on that vehicle was just, you know, like, right. Just a peak experience for me, you know, to, to realize that I'm flying in something that I designed. Mm. It's, tell us more about that. Like, how does that feel? Uh, scary. <laughs> not, <laughs> not because I, not because I lack confidence in my design, but just, you know, flight testing in general is, you know, you wake up in the morning and go to work at, you know, oh, dark hundred, 2 a.m., have a flight brief and get in the cockpit at 3 a.m. You know, you take off right as the sun crests the horizon, you know, before the winds pick up and you get butterflies and you're thinking, I may not go home to my family tonight. You know, I may never see him again. And what, you know, what should I do? Should I wake him up and kiss him goodbye? Should, you know, should mm -hmm. I have said something last night? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's intense. It's a real adrenaline rush. Mm. I asked that question specifically because you're at the edge of the flow state, right? Yeah. One, one step over, you're off the cliff. Step over here, you're too safe. Like, you know, you don't get to that flow state. And in my mind, I see this inner tension between, between that. And, and, and as you said earlier, earlier, do I say goodbye to my kids? Or do I not? Yeah. There's that internal grappling because you're not also, you're not just responsible for yourself. You now also have other people who depend on you. You know, moments like this is what I like to discuss on this podcast because people think living a purpose driven life is obvious, it's easy, but 
often it's it's not because it's in in the micro moments where you you grapple with things that's where you lean into your purpose. So tell us a little bit more. Unpack that if you don't mind. Choosing your passion, your dharma, your career, your synchronicity—this thing that drives you to keep pushing the envelope, in spite of your fear, in spite of your responsibility, and all these other things—to your attachment to other things that's in your life. So. I think we have as much responsibility to our passion as we do other people. And that is, that is, you've got to walk a balance there, I guess. Right. And it's, you know, should I not, should I not ride my bike to work because it's more dangerous than driving my car to work in the city because I enjoy bike riding. You know, it's like, I know a lot of people who, they get married and, and their spouse convinces them to sell the motorcycle because they're not a bachelor anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Is that the right thing? Mm-hmm. Maybe, but if it's your career choice, it's not just some sort of extracurricular thrill that you're seeking. This is what gives you purpose. Mm-hmm. And you've got to follow that. That's important. And it may be what killed you. It may be what kills you, but something's going to kill you. It might as well be something you're passionate about. Mm. That's you a horrible quote. I like it. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like risking failure when you're doing something as an entrepreneur or just designing something, you know, I worked at a place that strongly where we did all these prototypes, it was strongly encouraged to, you know, hurry up and, Hurry up and fuck it up so you can fix it, was the was the saying. In other words, you were encouraged to, failing was not failing. It was, you know, fail up or whatever you want to say. The cliche is you definitely get points for trying and succeeding comes from trying over and over again and not being dissuaded from the setbacks. So, I mean, you got to be smart about it, obviously. You can, you can keep trying something stupidly and expecting a different result, but there's definitely a method to... You know, it's like Edison trying all the different kinds of materials for filaments, right? For light bulbs. He tried hundreds and hundreds. He just kind of brute forced it, shotgun approach to development. And one of the interesting things in in, uh, my early career at Scale Composites was our quality control was that the guy that was the project engineer, which would be kind of like the chief engineer on a project, it was usually most of the engineers were pilots. It's just kind of our culture. And usually that person, that project engineer that led the program and the design was either the test pilot or the co-pilot on the first flight. So talk about quality control. You're making life or death decisions about doing a, a trade between strength and weight and, and minimizing material to make the performance good. And you're also saying, well, if this thing, if the, if the wing breaks in the first flight because of turbulence, it's going to kill me, you know? So it's like, that's the insurance, right? And it's it's putting your life at stake, your own life at stake. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. But Mm -hmm. so you're not, you don't want to die, Mm -hmm. but you also don't want to build a shitty product. That's too heavy. That doesn't have any payload capacity, right? That doesn't meet the performance spec. So you're challenged in every way, both, 
personally, physically, as well as mentally to, to achieve that goal. And that, that's about putting skin in the game. And even though I wasn't an owner in the company, I always felt like I had skin in the game in my projects quite often. Hmm. That either I was going to fly on that thing on the first flight or someone I knew, you know, a close friend was. Hmm. And so it's a lot what motivates entrepreneurs, you know, is that there's a reward, there's a risk and a reward. Hmm. There's so many things I could ask, but I'm also cognizant of time as well. <laughs> I'm, I'm grappling internally of where, where to take this conversation to. Well, you're doing a great job because this is, I feel like this has been very freeform and you're doing a good job of. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Of guiding, guiding our discussion. I, I'm enjoying it a lot. Oh, thank you. You know, I'll bring it to something that's outside of flights, but I want to use the same mental model still, right? Because as an entrepreneur, you're birthing a new idea from an idea to a product to the world, right? And as you said, there's a certain thrill of seeing that, witnessing that, that birthing process coming to place and probably use the product yourself, probably seeing other people using it. There's a certain thrill, certain right. satisfaction that comes with that. And there's also responsibility that comes with that as well. We want to make sure that this thing performs better than others. At the same time, we also don't want it to have certain cost, you know, certain ramification that we didn't think about and harm someone else, let's say, right? So there's that edge of pushing the limit. So how can we concretize because for you is about pushing the envelope and that's someone have a vision you are the navy seal team to bring that to reality yeah i like to think that you don't know where the edge is unless you walk up to the edge okay so say more about that please well it's just you know when you're on a on a plateau on a cliff you know you don't know where the edge is until you walk right to the you don't feel that anxiety of falling until you get very close to the edge. It's amazing. It's not much more dangerous to stand a foot from the edge than to stand two feet from the edge. But the fear factor and the, the realization that you could fall when your center of gravity is close enough to, you know, if I were to lay down right now, I might fall over the edge versus if I'm six feet from the edge and I fall down, if I trip, I'm going to land on, on the top of this cliff where I'm standing already. If I stand on the edge and I trip and fall, I'm going to fall down, you know, a thousand feet. And it's that last little bit that makes a huge difference. And you don't okay. know where that is until you go there. You know, okay. It's kind of like the, the hardest part of a pre the last 1% takes 50% of the time kind of thing. It's so, about defining the boundary. The boundary is the interesting place to be. So when someone comes to you and say, hey, I want to bring this experimental, I want to push an envelope in the aircraft world. Yeah. And you, you have, you can pick whoever you want, right? And you're picking your Navy SEAL team together. So, yeah. in my, so tell us a little bit about the selection criteria of how you pick those people. Uh, if you can make a, me a, a meta framework yeah. about that. Well, I guess qualities that I 
admire that I want on my team are people that are willing to learn, that are self-starters. So in other words, they can either be shown a goal or they identify the problems themselves in their area. So everyone's working for one big goal, but there's a lot of little milestone hurdles that a lot of them unforeseen, right? The unknown unknowns. And everybody is looking for those pitfalls and those risks in their own way and stretching themselves physically and mentally to learn what they need to do to mitigate those risks because it wouldn't be a challenge if there wasn't risk. And so everybody is trying to identify the risks so that they don't become gotchas too late that can you know, terminate a project from being successful. And so you look for people that are uh, both creative or smart or experienced that can identify those pitfalls and that are willing also to grow because again, if they're, if it's all, if it's all predictable, then it wouldn't have been a challenge in the first place and it would maybe not worth doing. It's not a prototype for instance, or a new industry or a new something. So everybody should be, every member should be willing to stretch their horizons. It's kind of what's fun about, you know, spitballing ideas or brainstorming, right? Is you're challenging your mind. I've heard it said that when you're doing a creative session where you're brainstorming, if somebody doesn't laugh, you guys aren't, you're not trying hard enough because the laughter is a sign of nervousness where someone's outside their comfort zone, right? It's mm -hmm. a way of dealing with the stress. And so that's how you know you're like actually breaking new ground as you make people feel uncomfortable. Mm, interesting. I, I like to bring back the being ridiculous point. Sure. Because um, so, part of innovation is so ridiculous that it's, it's you know, it's, it's laughable. Right. Uh, whether it's out of ridiculousness or out of nervousness, you're like, right. ah, I don't know if we could do that. Yeah. So hmm. what about the dynamics of the team? How do you navigate? Because you're pushing the envelope. And as you know, when you, whether it's physical, uh, physicality, creativity, mentality, psychology, spirituality, it, it gets intense, right? So how do you manage that dynamism, the dynamics between the team members as you're pushing the envelopes together? Does that make sense? Yes, but I don't, I'm not sure I know how to answer that. <laughs> uh, Is there a meta framework that you use? Like, Hey, let me make, yeah, let me make sure I'm pushing this person always at the edge of their comfort zone versus letting them be comfortable. Is there a specific thing that you, a trick or a thing that you, a ritual that you use as a way to motivate them to be at the edge of their comfort zone? Humor often works. Okay. Like say more said, about that. You know, well, it's just, they say that humor is always at the expense of at the pain of someone else, almost always. You know, you think of like, like physical humor is usually some kind of pratfall, right? You know, it's Buster Keaton falling down or, you know, the tramp, you know, 
almost getting run over by a car and stepping on a rake, whatever, you know, it's, it's humor is a way to, it kind of builds connection and it's like a great equalizer from a, an ego standpoint, you know, it kind of breaks down the, it's kind of like when you, you know, you have a good comrade, you tease, tease them, you know, like in a buddy movie when, when there's two different characters of different ethnicities and they, and they're just constantly throwing epitaphs at each other about, you know, their race or something or their gender or something. And they don't mean it. It's just a way of showing, it's a way of breaking down ego and saying, we're all, you know, let's, let's put all that aside. So I think humor in, in, in a project is, is a good way to relieve stress. Something I've incorporated in engineering meetings myself is I've challenged my engineers to, they have to, they have to express their, when they have a gripe, they have to express it in the form of a haiku. So we would have meetings where we'd all like read each other's, you know, we'd all get up and read our haikus or a lot of times they ended up being in PowerPoints, right? So there'd be a, there'd be a graphical element as well, you know, kind of a multimedia presentation. Oh man. So let's say the propulsion engineer is having trouble sourcing the, the turbine engines for the airplane because the vendor won't provide, give them a non-disclosure agreement because of some export licensing thing, you know, whatever, some technical so he's frustrated, right? It shouldn't be a problem. He's an engineer. He doesn't want to deal with the bureaucracy of, you know, some export licensing thing that the State Department has. So he expresses his frustration in the form of a haiku. And I think it's, it's a lot of fun for engineers to do that because a haiku is very structured and engineers like problem solving. It's a puzzle, right? There's rules and then you work within those rules and then there's an opportunity for creativity. And then you can also make an ass out of yourself and be a clown in front of everyone and get a good laugh out of it. Mm. And by the time you've sat down and thought about the haiku long enough to express your gripe, usually you've come to terms with it. And it's kind of like you've, you've reached a state, you, you're at peace with it now. Like mm. by the time you, even before you present it to anyone, mm. you've thought about it, you've meditated on it you've broken it down and it's kind of, uh, it's very cathartic and we've mm -hmm. had a lot of fun with it. So that's kind mm -hmm. of, usually most of them ended up being comical. You know, everyone mm -hmm. took the opportunity to kind of one up each other with something funny in their haiku. Mm -hmm. And the gripes ended up being a lot of fun rather than, you know, a pissing contest of finger pointing. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. That's innovative. I've never heard that before. Yeah. I really yeah. like it. Well, for its inventiveness, but also if I think about how do we actually reconcile the internal grappling that's within each and every one of us, yeah. I think having a structure like a haiku, as you said, provide that emotional distance. And then we go back to it. It's like exposure therapy, right? You go back to it, right. think about it, chewing on it, meditate on right. it. And by the time we're ready to find the words that, that, that allows us to express our emotions in the way that we wanted to, to, to do it precisely, we already have uh, resolved or integrated this internal negative emotion that we have about it. Yeah, that's really, really great. Do you mind uh, switch direction a little bit, talking about uh, psychedelics? Sure. Okay, awesome. <clears throat> so part of 
I think what makes an innovator inventive is their ability or their flexibility of the way they think about uh, problems, right? So because traditionally you just think about a problem this way, but I think what makes an innovator innovative is the ability to look at it from different points of view, bring out their expertise and different things. So I'm an advocate for psychedelics for that reason as well. So curious to know your practice or how do you have used psychedelics or have seen others use psychedelics as a way to foster that perspective change, that innovativeness, that inventiveness? One analogy is kind of like the one I described where flying gives you a different perspective. It, you know, the, the cliche when you die and you rise out of your body and you look down at it in the room, that kind of thing seems like sort of a hallucinogenic experience. But I think the cliche aside, it really does give you the to take you out of maybe it puts you it's about being present maybe even more so than uh, a, a lot of our lives we spend thinking about the past and it that brings on depression thinking about the future brings on anxiety and being present i think hallucinogenic experiences can help you become more present and in the now, which is really about being in a flow state, right? It's about you get a heightened, it's like heightened reality. I don't think of hallucinogenics as being altered reality. I think it's hyper reality. It's about being aware of things that details that you don't usually see or hear or and it's it's all there but your brain filters it and this thing turns down the filters and so now you're extremely present maybe much like you would when you're meditating and that focus can be transformative it can break down your ego and it can give you a sense of your place you know it's very often challenging to you know you go in and out of existential thoughts of what's my purpose where am i going am i living a meaningful life is that just a construct is there even such a thing is it just a waste of time am i just you know some biological thing a bunch of cells just clawing at trying to stay alive or do i have purpose and I think you can get a little, some answers to all of those things from a hallucinogenic experience and not necessarily the ones you want, but maybe you become at peace with accepting the fact that, you know, I don't have a divine purpose or maybe I do. It's, but being very present gives you the opportunity to explore that personally. Hmm. And it's, it's also about being on the edge and challenging yourself mentally and sometimes physically it's about accepting it, it's it's a place of it can be very uncomfortable mentally because it's unfamiliar terrain it's like traveling to a foreign country where the culture the language everything is different and some people love that kind of experience and some people don't 
So if you love that kind of experience, I think hallucinogenics is similar to that in that you've immersed yourself in something that is letting you know that there's that your way is just one way and there's an awful lot of people moving through space in a way much different than you. And they're successful, they're successful in their own way at doing things their way. You know, their culture, their language, their philosophy, their way of communicating love, all those things. And so I think uh, a hallucinogenic experience can often be transformative like that, where you come out feeling schooled, right? The school of hyper-reality. Yes. I love it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I mean, they, they call it tripping for a reason, right? You're, you're going on a, an adventure, a travel. It can be educational. It can be fun. It can be both. It can be mm. scary. Mm -hmm. It can be uncomfortable. Sometimes it's good to be uncomfortable. Yeah, part of the theme of this podcast is about leaning to your discomfort. Right. Um, that's hence the word noble warrior. Right. right. Yeah, Tim that... Ferriss talks about don't define your goals, define your fears. Mm -hmm. And who do we get to be as we lean into our discomfort? That to me is the payoff. Uh, yeah. of being that discomfort because in my younger days i would say i wanted the outcome hence why I, in order to get the outcome i lean into my discomfort but my priority was the outcome but these days for me personally it's more about who do i get to be as i'm leaning to my discomfort because oftentimes let's use psychedelic experience or burning man or entrepreneurship or being on a podcast a lot of times it's uncomfortable for me to be at the edge, but I do it because it allows me to, you know, test myself. Like, who do I get to be in spite of discomfort, right? Who do I yeah. get to be when I'm being pummeled by my sparring partner? <laughs> Another interesting way to look at it is they say, you know, everyone agrees, you know, life is hard. It's not always going to be happy. And I mean, everyone experiences hardship in their life. It's, you know, it's, it's uh, a bunch of organisms. It's the animal kingdom. It's who eats who and where you are in the pecking order and all that, the dog eat dog nature. And when we choose a, a lifestyle or a career, it's, it's about choosing what pain you, what, which thing is, is the least painful. So, you know, no job or career is without suffering or pain or hardship but it's one that you choose so in other words it's a pain that you're comfortable with so it's about getting comfortable with the kind of pain that you like so if you enjoy you know if you want to be a professional tennis player then you probably want to work out every day for hours and whack thousands of balls you know and spend you know travel or whatever the discomforts are to being a professional athlete lots of travel lots of exercise grueling, you know, running, the, the strenuous stuff, getting up early, 
but to them, that's their enjoy. They enjoy that kind of pain. They chose that pain. And I think all of us do that, you know, whatever that career choice or life choice is, it's about choosing a pain where we can get comfortable with or a discomfort. And if I circle back to the hallucinogenics, it's about getting, getting comfortable with being in unfamiliar environment, which in itself can be painful or uncomfortable to some extent. Yeah. I want to underline what you just said. I thought it was very profound. Is choose the pain of your own choosing. Yeah. Because I, I think, how do I unpack that? We always get some kind of payoff or there's always some kind of cost to any kind of actions or right. decisions that we make, right? Whether it's a career you want to get into or a relationship you want to get into or a community you want to get into or activity that you want to get into, there's always a payoff and a cost to that in my mind, in right. the way I think about it. So if that's the case, what is the pain or the cost of my own choosing? And as you said, as a professional athlete, there are certain things you got to do every day, right? As right. a as a podcaster, there are certain things you got to do, right? That you don't necessarily like. There, in, in being in relationship, there are certain things you got to do you may not right. necessarily like. And so, what is the pain of your own choosing, such that net net is positive for you, that you get so much enjoyment, right. satisfaction, fulfillment out of it, that you're willing to pay that price? Is that an yeah. accurate re a way to recap what you said? Absolutely. Like some people would not think getting a PhD is, is any kind of pain they would want to put themselves through, but that was something that you chose to do. Mm -hmm. right? I'm sure it was challenging. Otherwise everyone could do it. Right. Yep, for and sure. It was challenging. So it was hard. And, <laughs> That's for sure. Right. And so everybody chooses their pain mm -hmm. it, to them. It was worth it. Mm -hmm. Well, Kilo, we talk about a lot of different things. We talked about yes. Burning Man. We talked about your love of flies. We talked about managing or re, uh, recruiting a, a team of Navy SEAL innovators, managing the dynamics, a little bit about psychedelics, a little bit about choosing a purpose-driven life. Out of everything that we had talked about, if there's one action that people are inspired by the way you think, what's one action that they could take to live a more purpose-driven life from your point of view? One action. Embrace discomfort and challenge yourself, be it through creativity or hard work or comedy. Yeah, any of those things can be uncomfortable. And they, they, they're all well worth the investment. Mm. Beautiful. Now, for people who are interested in following with what you do, what you're up to, where should we send them to? So my current passion is the AnglerBot, which is a industrial robot used for camera motion control in film and that's a venture that I started with my daughter who's a film director so it's a 
the two of us have this company and it's Sonder Films and you can look up on Instagram or our website anglerbot.com or look up yeah just look up anglerbot angler like the fish oh make sure that it's in the show notes yep yeah sure beautiful so that's that's kind of what I'm that's my current passion I'm still you know, flying and, and tinkering in aerospace as well. Beautiful, my friend. Thank you so much yeah. for your generosity, sharing with us your stories, and, you know, share with us some of the behind the scenes of what it actually took to bring White Knight to, you know, beyond the atmosphere. There's so many more things I do want to get into with you. So I hope that we get a chance to do part two or part three of this conversation. Thank you so much. Yeah, for hopefully maybe we can share a drink sometime with with our covid masks and a straw <laughs> <laughs>